the scriptures. In uh, services, we're having a summer series called um, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And this morning, I'd like to speak uh, from the text is Mark nine forty-two to 48. I'm going to read that. Mark 2, 42 to 48. And the nature of hard sayings of Jesus is that they, they're hard. <laughs> they're difficult. They seem abrupt and challenging. But we pay attention to what he says. His words are true. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hanging around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble... Cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worms that eat them will not die or do not die and the fire is not quenched. We're either doing really well here because everyone's got hands and feet and eyes. Let's pray. I pray, Father, that the words Jesus taught are words that are full of life and power. But they're not just words that we can just accept it and, and kind of go, yeah, that's nice. That they speak into the stuff in our heart and mind. They speak to our culture. They speak to our assumptions. They cause us to address things that we might not want to. And I pray for grace in speaking helping us to consider these words that our Lord and Saviour Jesus spoke. I pray, help me to do that well. And I pray, Holy Spirit, through this time, you'd help us to keep focus, but also to take what Jesus says and make it our own. Amen. Amen. Five or six centuries ago, a man, William Tyndale, was passionate about making sure that every believer should have the ability to have the scriptures in their own language, not to have to learn Latin, as it was the preserve of, of the church at that, at that time. That it was important that every believer would have the, the right and the ability to have the New Testament, at least initially, to read in the vernacular in our own language. 
And as he did so, as that was coming out, people got a little bit horrified and there was an attempt to restrict the circulation of his New Testament because there was a fear that a simple reader, like me and you, might read the New Testament and take it literally. And one of the reasons they, they said we must restrict access was drawn from this very passage. They said that, that people, simple readers, may pluck out his eyes so that the whole realm will be full of blind men to the great decay of the nation and the manifest loss of the king's grace. And thus, by reading the scriptures, will the whole realm come into confusion. I mean, maybe they underplayed the simple person, but they, they did get something right. That when we take God's word seriously, the whole realm does get changed. Most people, when reading this text, are unlikely to to self-harm or self-mutilate in ways that were feared uh, a few centuries ago. And indeed, it is rare to find any someone, anyone, who would read these words and take them literally and cut off their hands or remove their eye or strike off their foot. Are we in agreement? Everyone's looking a little bit like, oh gosh, what's next? (laughs) Close the doors. We don't actually take Jesus literally here. The scriptures aren't calling for self-abuse for the sake of our participation in God's kingdom. Why? Well, for those of you who are interested, we immediately read those words and we think Jesus isn't asking us to to get out the large knife or the hatchet or ask someone to do something unpleasant to us. We hear of stories around the world where that is happen, happening to people uh, because, and it's part of a, a penal code uh, for, for various offences like uh, if you steal. But this isn't giving mandate to that. It isn't some sort of uh, draconian sanction to get us all to behave properly because of fear of losing a body part. It's not literal. It's really important that we grasp this, and and, and we do this all the time when we're reading the scriptures. We read it, and we, we, we begin to interpret it. We begin to think about what is being said. Now, if you're a biblical literalist, a fundamentalist, who says, well, it's in the scriptures, therefore I believe what it says, and I do what it says, kind of black and white, it's there for plain to see. And this is, in my version, is a red letter Bible, meaning the words of Jesus in red, therefore we must take them extra seriously, I would kind of raise the question, well, why, why, why have you got two hands and two eyes? Are you telling me that you haven't sinned, you haven't uh, struggled, that you, you found that you've never done anything in your life and existence to this point that would merit this? Well, of course not. Jesus wouldn't say we're to be literalistic. Of course I agree. But for the biblical fundamentalist, this is one of those texts that that kind of says, we don't just read it and take it on face value and do it. Because we don't think Jesus is into self-harm and causing us to mutilate ourselves in the body of Christ. Not a great evangelistic strategy anyway, is it? I think. One of these, these texts, this one particularly, this hard saying, immediately make us think, what is Jesus driving at? 
That it's not wrong to take the scriptures and to think about them, to reflect upon them, to see them in the light of other scriptures, to hold them against other things that Jesus does and says and the scripture does and says in order for us to understand it. If we do that with this text, we should do it with the others. Now, don't hear me of saying I'm therefore watering down the gospel or, or kind of undermining the truth of scripture. Far from it. But the way that scripture is given to us means that we have to read it, we have to think about it, we have to, often we can do this alone, but it's also really good to do this together, that we read it and understand it. And and where there are challenges, we ask questions, say, could it mean that? Or or how, how should we interpret it? How should we understand it? Not only for the believers who heard it when Jesus spoke, but in the today. We can talk about that some more, but it's, it's a really important part of reading the scriptures. That's what we're doing in sermons, is helping understand the scriptures, of spending time studying in it for Phil or I or whoever's preaching, and then to seek to explain it and apply it. If we didn't do that, we wouldn't have a sermon. We'd just read it and say, therefore, now you know what to do, get on with it. There are bits of scripture that are really clear like that. Don't murder. Doesn't take much interpretation. Still not good to murder. But this text takes a bit of thinking. And that's why we're covering hard sayings. Jesus is using a figure of speech. But before I get on to that, it's also worth reflecting when we think about this text, putting it in the context of Jesus. Whenever we read of Jesus, uh, so much of the gospel is filled with his life-giving word and ministry. That his will is to heal and restore. And that to take this teaching literally, to wrench it out of all that is said and done by Jesus and recorded for us in the wonderful scriptures, is to do an injustice and fails to understand the wider teaching and ministry of Jesus. That he's the healer, isn't he? So why would he in the next verse say, well, I'm the healer, but now cut something off? John the Baptist, uh, when he was in prison, when Herod uh, and the forces opposed to the kingdom of God were stretching their muscles, they'd arrested Herod. They put him in prison for preaching the gospel and challenging some ungodly behavior. He, he was kind of wondering, is, this, is Jesus the Messiah? Sent one of his disciples to ask him, are you the Messiah or is one to come? Another one to come. And the response of Jesus is really telling. He says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are receiving good news. That's the mandate and the focus and the outwork of everything Jesus does. Jesus is the great doctor, the great physician. And Christians through the centuries have established again and again in places around the world, in Britain still, uh, there are hospitals and clinics And the church and followers of Jesus have recognized the importance of body, mind, and spirit to treat the whole person. In other words, it would be wrong to take this text on face value and say, let's perform this radical surgery. But there is a figure of speech being used, driving at a really important point, we'll get there, but a figure of speech nonetheless. It's like saying, 
Uh, you know, there's something really, really amazing and good that you want. You say, oh, I'd give my right arm for that. If you've, uh, if you've, um, I'm just trying to remember, it's come to me. Uh, the Shakespeare play, um, the Pound of Flesh one, what's that one called? Um, Merchant of Venice, thank you. It's just eluding me. Uh, there was a kind of that pound of flesh thing, and, and there's that whole horrible scene of, of working out, but actually being a figure of speech. So these words are, are strong. It starts off with Jesus addressing this millstone idea. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, that doesn't just necessarily mean uh, children, but also any believer, particularly those who are new and beginning in the faith. Anyone who would cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck, thrown into the sea. I mean, Jesus is great at word pictures, isn't he? If you're with me still listening, you can, you can imagine that. It's better to die in a grotesque way than ruin a little one who enjoys special favor with Jesus. It's a reminder that we're called not to lead anyone astray. It's a reminder in the focus of this that what we do has implications for others. The next three statements about the hand and the eye and the foot are self-directed. But, but Jesus uh, responds and reminds that says, don't lead anyone astray. That we are held accountable if my words or actions or your attitudes lead another person into stumbling and falling away or into sin. It's a salutary reminder to walk closely with God. To think from this point forward, every person that I interact with will either leave better or worse, stronger or weaker, happier or sadder. That how we are, how we interrelate with other people matters. The Apostle Paul picks up so much and says, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and gentleness and and goodness, self-control, fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. Colossians chapter 3. To be characterized and marked by love. Put off the things that actually are destructive and damaging, not just to oneself, but to those we encounter. It matters. It matters more than we think. And this is why there's this, this strong image. I grew up in, in Yorkshire, South Yorkshire. I know you can't tell. People say, really? You're not northern. I do say path and grass and castle. Gives a clue. It was on the edge where there are millstones. Still on the edge of Stanage Edge and Burbage Edge. From the grit stone. And as kids, we try and lift them. No chance. And the image is stark. Pop one of those around yourself. You would plummet quickly. And the reason he's doing that is to mark out, to, to underline, to highlight, to, to illustrate by way of contrast. In our world of our own rights and our own individualism where we think it's just ourselves and to hell with everybody else. 
our interaction with our neighbor, our family, our chance encounters affect people. Clothe yourself with the kingdom. I came across a a story of uh, Josiah Wedgwood. I I don't read pottery books very often. Very rarely, actually. But Josiah Wedgwood, uh, you know, the the potter in the 18th century, one day was showing around a a man and a youth through his factory. And during the entire tour, the man used vile and offensive offensive language and made lewd gestures. In the last room, Mr. Wedgwood locked the door to a display, uh, unlocked the door to a display cabinet, removed this exquisite vase. He pointed out its unique and expensive features. Then he lifted it above his head and he dropped it to the floor and it, it, it broke into countless pieces. The man let out an oath and asked, why did you do that? I think actually this story has sanitized the words, to be honest. But why would you do that? I would have paid you anything to have, uh, you'd have charged to have such an exquisite vase. Josiah Wedgwood replied, sir, I can make any, another vase just like that one. But no one can replace what you've destroyed this day in the soul of this young man. Who we are and how we are has impacts. And then Jesus moves on to these three sayings. Similar formula. If your hand, eye, foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, pluck it out, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than to go whole into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first thing to, to just kind of um, correct is, is there is no sense in which Jesus is contrary to our modern perspective of psychology. What do I mean? Uh, I, one of my friend's children punched his sister. And when asked, because the sister was crying, why did you punch? She said, my fist did it. <laughs> my friend, an eye surgeon in, for a time in Sierra Leone, was, was trying to teach people how to, to do cataract surgery. And he was assessing one eye. And there was this dreadful incision. The cataract operation had gone badly. And said to the uh, trainee, what happened? Why is this so bad that the scalpel did it. Jesus isn't saying that our hand is autonomous. He isn't saying that our eye, it just does its own thing, that roving eye. It wasn't me that was doing it. Or I kicked the dog, it was just my foot's fault. He's not saying that. The hand and the foot and the eye are not autonomous. When a a boy throws a stone through a window, neither the breaking glass nor the stone is the sin, but rather the the motive. Why did he do it in the first place? And yet when Jesus uses the the eye and the hand and the foot, there is a deep truth to it. He's not saying they're autonomous, we're not responsible for them, but the eye is the window of the soul. And what we do with that, what we look at, what we linger in looking at, what we covet, what we lust for reveals the nature of the heart. And indeed, the hand and the foot 
can be agents of grace to bring a cup of water or a reassuring prayer, a blessing, but also can strike and hurt and carry out all sorts of actions from the heart. And Jesus strongly says, pluck it out, cut it off, cut it off. He gets our attention. Because it's striking and it seems shocking. What's he driving at? He says, well, it's far better to enter life in the realm of God with a hand or foot missing than to find oneself in hell. The word that is actually used is a place, Gehenna. We, we've translated it in our modern translations as hell. It's actually a specific place. That place, Gehenna, was on the south side of Jerusalem in the valley in which the city residents of Jerusalem would chuck out all of their uh, rubbish and um, uh, and garbage and waste, and it would be set light to. And so on the south side, the south valley of, of Jerusalem, that would be where there was this constant refuse dump, and it would be burning and burning and burning and never go out. And, and part of the reason they did that was that actually that became, in the time of the Babylonians, where they'd worship this false god Molech and do dreadful acts of, of worshipping to appease that false god and ended up being this garbage dump, this sort of compounding of, of the place of godlessness and of awfulness. I want to try and paint to you what, how awful it might be because we live in such uh, dental uh, sanitized lives with disposable gloves and soap and all those good things and air freshness. As I'm sure Mark knows, going to Goa opens the nostrils somewhat. I was uh, going to a wedding once in Birmingham, driving from Sheffield, and it was one of those hot, wonderful, sunny days that we get once a year. And uh, we were driving, uh, my friend and I, from Sheffield to to the wedding in Birmingham, and um, the M42 was closed, so we had to do this detour. And uh, on this detour, uh, on this reroute, the traffic was awful, but we realized why it was awful, because the motorway was closed, but then there'd been an accident on the detour, and it was taking forever to get past. The reason there'd been an accident was this truck, lorry, flatbed thing. I don't know why it was carrying it, but it had broken down or had an accident, and in the back of this truck, it obviously come from an abattoir, and it was full of all the offal and innards and guts of stuff, you know, of creatures. And it was this baking hot day, and, and it had come off the road, and all the contents had come onto the road. Now, some poor workman had the job of brush and shovel to get this stuff off the road. We happened to be just driving past. Hot day, I was in a Vauxhall Nova rubbish car. But it had no air conditioning. Even if you put it on cold, there was nothing to help you. And so we'd got, it was a two-door, a two, uh, it only had two doors, so we'd got the windows wound down. We were in our finery going to this wedding. We were late because the M42 was shut. And all of a sudden, we were kind of like, oh, what's that ahead? Oh, it's the cause of the delay. And as we drove past, this wall of awful, 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 rotting, poo-laced, foul stench accosted us. It just kind of came in like this oily wave. And your kind of nose picks it up and it was like, 
oh, horrible. And then, it, you know, you kind of go, oh, and it was so strong, you could taste this stuff. It was like, what do you, could, we need to breathe, but you could t- inhale this rotting heart. I mean, the cloud of flies. I'm trying to paint a picture. Do you want me to continue? Why do I say this? Well, we have nice people. Well, no, we have a wonderful system where every, every week, fortnight, people come and take our rubbish away. And we're removed from the smell and the maggots and the stench and the flies. But Gehenna, this south valley outside the city, whereas all that stuff and more was tipped. And it would smell and be unpleasant. And no one in their right mind would think, I'm going to hang out there. Disgusting. Where we have the privilege of serving in uh, and partnering with friends in, in India with the school, it was estab- the school is established next to the garbage dump. And there have been a number of times that as the garbage is being burnt and the remains of animal carcasses fester in the sun and all the stuffy, acrid smell and it makes you wretch. It's disgusting. I've underlined this enough. It would be better... Than to be thrown in this place. Jesus pictures Gehenna as a fitting symbol and illustration of godlessness, of rejection of God, of the final destruction of the wicked. It will be horrific. Why would anyone choose that? Why? And the great news of the gospel is that is a destiny that people will choose, but we have the option and the choice and the wonderful gift of God to embrace Jesus and enter fullness of life. But he uses that illustration in this context to say, if you had to go there or go and live in the place of luxury and fine-centered things, and it would cost you your hands, it would be worth giving up your hand because that place is so awful and this place is so wonderful. Interestingly, he quotes from Isaiah 66, verse 24, the very last verse of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah wrote, and they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me, and the worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Sometimes we think God is a vindictive judge, God, we, judge, judgmental God. You read the Old Testament and think, I don't know if I want to know that, God. Actually, what he's doing is pointing out and saying, You, me, sister, brother, please open your eyes to see reality. Please recognize that the choices and the consequences of your rebellion against me lead to a dark, horrible, disgusting, fetid, rancid, repulsive place. Change your direction. Come with me. Choose me and live. It's extreme 
language. Because Jesus is driving to this very crucial issue. Everything is at stake. In order to participate in that wonderful and full life of God, we need to set aside every obstacle that would prevent us from walking and entering into fullness of life. Jesus, through this figure of speech, through this most dramatic, kind of slightly uh, brutal phraseology, he says nothing else is more important, nothing else matters more. Don't allow anything else to stand in the way. Two weeks ago, Phil, Phil talked about Jesus' phrase, hate your family. He's not saying go home and be really unkind to your mum and dad. But nothing else matters more, not parents or possessions or security, not even in this hard saying, one's own body should take precedence over our choice for God. Indeed, God's claim on our life transcends all other claims. Now, don't mishear me. Our place in God's kingdom is not dependent on our body parts, but God's claim upon the whole of our life. A poet wrote these words in the poem, The Touch of the Master's Hand. The foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of the soul. Paul urges uh, the church in Corinth to remember in 1 Corinthians 6 that we must keep ourselves pure for the Holy Spirit indwells us now as the the new temples of uh, where God dwells. Our body is like a temple, that we are members of Christ's body to be holy. What's he driving at? In the things of the kingdom, seek first the kingdom of God. Top priority. To contrast the awfulness of Gehenna hell with the brilliance of walking with God and don't let anything come between you. Choose that, not that. Why would you choose that? It's dreadful. Choose life. And the irony of our day, as I thought about this, the irony of our day is that we're perhaps more enamored, or that word means in love with, efforts to beautify our bodies and promote health and care for our body. We know our bodies matter. I go into a department store and walk through those perfume and makeup counters and past the health food parts in our supermarkets. That implies that I don't wear makeup, I don't, and I don't eat health foods. I do. I'm not saying I ignore them, but we are recognizing the importance of our bodies. We clothe ourselves, we dress ourselves, we, we seek to eat healthily and keep fit. But we also recognize that we, we battle with forces that abuse and destroy our bodies. Substance abuse, alcoholism, poor diet, smoking, and all the rest. Goes to show that our bodies are important. They matter to us. But Jesus is driving at something, not saying our bodies are unimportant. That our health is unimportant. Far from it, it is. But he's just driving deeper and saying, recognize this. Matthew's gospel, he said, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He's saying, our bodies matter, yes. 
But there's more to us than that. There's more to just living in the moment of hedonism, of just experience and consume and find fulfillment in the here and now. And and tomorrow we breathe our last, last and die. There's more to it. And for the believer, it's not just following the pattern of this world. It's saying for a believer, we've been set free from this. We've been restored into life. And let's not just follow the pattern of this world, but we're renewed in our thinking to live for him and for the more. There's nothing more important than this drives this passage. To open the heart to the grace of God and let nothing keep us from entering God's kingdom. Of course, no, our hand or foot or eye actually needs to be sacrificed. Last week we shared communion and and part of the word said, this is my body which is broken for you. That in restoring our life, his life was broken. That in demonstrating, as as we sung at the start of the service, he leaves the 99 for the one. That the grace of God to this world says that he rescues as the price is paid because he gave his all. Such that we should live. Let's respond in worship to the one who rescues us. And in worshiping, let's dedicate ourselves afresh.